This is a Federal News Network podcast. Whether you think House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is leaving on a wave of glory or on a broomstick, things are shifting in Congress. In the meantime, she's still Speaker for the remainder of the 117th Congress, affectionately known now as a lame duck. And it's got a lot to do, as we learned from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. She still is the speaker until the end of the calendar year. And so what can be expected in the next couple of weeks? Right. She'll still be in that top post, and then we'll see what happens in the new year. We're already seeing the emergence of the new leaders of the Democratic Party in the House. But for now, the business at hand is really getting everything done in the lame duck. And as you know, we have the uh, federal government scheduled to run out of money as of December 16th, so in less than a month. And Democrats are really hoping to pass an omnibus budget bill that would go through the end of the next uh, through the end of the fiscal year they don't want to do this short-term spending plan a lot of Republicans share that view but then there are a lot of House Republicans that would like to put the brakes on a longer bigger omnibus plan and they because they want to basically get their own fingerprints on the budget and so they would actually prefer a short-term measure so that in the start of the new year they could start making cuts and proposals and trying to slam the brakes on a lot of the spending that they think is out of control So it's going to be interesting to see how this is navigated over the next several weeks, but that's certainly one of the top priorities. And then another one is the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. That needs to be passed, and that's already caused a kerfuffle between Democrats and Republicans in the House, where Republicans, as I alluded to, are preparing to take over. There was a comment last week that Kevin McCarthy basically indicated he'd like the defense policy bill to be delayed until next year as well, again, for some of the reasons I just mentioned. And House Armed Services Committee Chair Adam Smith just wants nothing to do with it. He said that we've got to get this passed this year. As you know, it's got a long, long history of actually getting passed on time, unlike everything else. uh, Six decades, in fact, that the NDAA has always gotten passed. But there is this already this push and pull that you're seeing early on here as Republicans are poised to take control of the House. Well, given the makeup that they will actually have of the House and given the fact that the Senate will still be democratically oriented, again, by a very slim measure, it seems like both sides now can be more effective as roadblocks than as actually creative forces. Absolutely. And and that's why I think that Kevin McCarthy and a lot of the House Republicans are starting to send up these flares indicating that, no, it's not going to be business maybe as usual or at least under budget reconciliation where we saw Democrats kind of get everything through just barely. There are going to be a lot of roadblocks. Now, Obviously, the Democrats still have the control right now, and there is a feeling in the Senate, as there often is, that things are not as hot-tempered as they are in the House with uh, Republican senators who really feel like they would like to get some of these long-term spending plans through because they know what's going to happen. They know that their own party is going to be throwing up a lot of these roadblocks in the coming year. Yeah, I like the fact that Mitch McConnell said, well, he didn't mind someone opposing him for the Senate minority leader. Of course, that senator's new office will be upstairs over the Dubliner in a closet. But <laughs> other than that, otherwise he never gets even. Or, or Rick Scott, actually, Florida Senator Rick Scott. I'm sorry, Scott. yes, Rick Scott, right. So we'll see what kind of drapes he measures for. <laughs> right. The other issue, of course, is the debt limit. And do we know precisely when that's going to hit the fan? Well, this is another familiar theme we're getting to. Democrats want to get some 
some kind of bipartisan agreement. They would really like to get this somehow resolved right now or within the next few weeks before the end of the year. But Republicans do not want to do that. That's already getting kind of a cool reception from Republicans. You know, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer had told reporters this week he wants to get this debt ceiling issue resolved so it doesn't hang over everybody's head next year. But Republicans, especially on the House side, would really like it hanging over like a sort of Damocles over Congress because they know that they can use that as a cudgel to try to get some of the policy issues changed and some of the spending priorities changed. So I think that this is probably not going to get resolved before the end of the year. And then potentially in the coming year, as we get this huge clash politically in the House, I think we're going to see that become a very, very big issue in the new year. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And there's a changing dynamic, you know, when the new Congress comes. It'll be interesting just to consider that Nancy Pelosi will be what in Great Britain they would call a backbencher. But mm-hmm. I can almost see the appeal of that after the spotlight she has held. And that's a tough job, either being speaker or minority leader for all those, what is it, about 20 years. As you mentioned in the opening, I mean, she's either looked at as evil or a great leader over the years. Uh, But whatever you think of her politically, she is very, very good at what she does. And that is, you know, herding these cats, which can often be really out of control in the Democratic caucus, getting that progressive wing under control at times, uh, getting the centrists to go along with them. Obviously, a lot of centrist Democrats barely got reelected this year because they were concerned about what some of the progressives were doing. So what she has been really a master of is getting that unwieldy caucus and making sure that they're all on the same page. There were times, as you know, over the last year where it looked like things were going to totally fall apart for Democrats. And it was largely to the credit of House Speaker Pelosi that House Democrats were able to get things together to get it through so that the Senate could then get it through budget reconciliation. She has a real command of legislative topics, policy, getting things through committees. She has, of course, been a legislator now for 35 years. So she'll be moving to that back bench, but you can be sure she is going to be holding out some control from that back area uh, because she just is not going to relinquish that as we move forward. Right. So you'll have someone inexperienced in the top leadership position as speaker, and then you'll have someone inexperienced as the minority leader. They'll be new to that leadership position. And so that ability to, like you say, corral the cats or herd the horses or whatever, you know, get everyone <laughs> to do what she wanted them to do. It's doubtful that either side is going to have that kind of control over its own, I guess, the Democrats call it the caucus. The Republicans call it the conference. Right. And in the Republican conference, um, Kevin McCarthy has been buffeted by all kinds of political wins over the last couple of years, whether it's from former President Trump or whether it's the conservatives in the House Freedom Caucus. They have already made it very clear that they are putting huge demands on him. Uh, He was uh, not he did not get the unanimous uh, acclamation uh, in the election by the House Republicans to become House Speaker. So he's got some work to do before this January vote when the full House will uh, presumably uh, vote him in, but he's going to have to make some deals over the next few weeks with these conservatives and try to figure out exactly how he's going to get the 218 votes that he really needs. And then, as you mentioned, on the Democratic side, what we're likely to see is in the coming weeks, they will have their own election at the end of this month. And uh, Hakeem Jeffries, the congressman from New York, who has been the head of the Democratic caucus for the last several years, 
widely uh, considered to be the heir apparent to House Speaker Pelosi, at least as the Democratic leader. So he will at least have the unanimity of the caucus. But again, he doesn't have any experience as the Democratic leader. So it'll be interesting to see how he negotiates things and and whether he and McCarthy are uh, up to the moment as we get forward into the new year. Yeah, I think there's that human element that is often misunderstood or misrecognized in the legislative process. Nancy Pelosi has it. Lyndon Johnson had it. Sam Rayburn had it. Ability to know what makes people tick and what really motivates an individual congressman or senator from their own district or state. That's a great point because and and, and Nancy Pelosi and the better politicians that are in political leadership know how to move those levers. I mean, it it gets down to the, the real basic level of knowing your fellow lawmakers and the names of their kids and what's going on with their families and being able to figure out, okay, well, we have a little friendship here. Can you do this for me on this issue? And I can do this for you on this issue. It is all about all these relationships. And, you know, because we're in such the era where everything is so divided, people kind of forget that. They think think it's going to kind of go on autopilot. But there are so many relationships and things that are going on behind the scenes before anything can actually get to the floor and get to a vote. And uh, that is something that I think the Democratic leadership is going to be missing for a while, even though she's going to be hanging back there in the shadows, uh, it's a lot different when she's not actually at the uh, in that position as House Speaker. And a final question to get back to some practical matters. Jerry Connolly from Virginia wants to look into the Postal Service to see if they're ready for Christmas. They better get on with that if it's going to affect anything this season. That's right. We're, we're moving right into the uh, holiday season with Thanksgiving around the corner. And there is been, has been a lot of congressional concern about this issue, especially since the pandemic. Uh, as you know, the House Oversight Panel, led by Virginia Congressman Jerry Connolly, has been very active in this issue. And they held a hearing last week. Gregory White with the Postal Service told lawmakers the Postal Service is in in much better shape than it was over the past two years when a lot of lawmakers were getting huge complaints from constituents about mail delays, lost mail, and it's not just like, oh, I didn't get this card from grandma or something, but we're talking about really serious issues, uh, not that that's not for some people, but uh, about whether or not they're getting their uh, medical uh, um, information or their billing or something that they need delivered. Uh, And so this has been an issue that uh, lawmakers have really been pushing hard on the Postal Service to make sure that things do get delivered on time. Now, the Postal Service is hiring about 20,000 seasonal employees, which sounds like a lot, and it is, for these holiday operations. But interestingly, that's actually less than half the number that they had over the last year uh, past. And the reason for that is uh, the Postal Service says it's actually gradually hiring more and more part-time people into full-time positions over the year, so you don't just get this final push at the end of the year. Now, the United Postmasters of America say the Postal Service still never seems to have enough people. And then there's always the issues of, uh, you know, they've ramped up some of the security conditions that that people have to go through to get hired. So it takes longer. And of course, you always have the the battle with the private sector about whether people are going to get jobs there. But overall, I think it is a pretty positive, I'll, I'll leave us on a positive note, that it looks like the holiday season is going to be pretty good for the Postal Service. At least that's what they're pledging. So you might 
say the Postal Service is going to have a de-joyous holiday. <laughs> there you go. All right. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Don't be a backbencher. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really 
sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. 
And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper sticker sayings. And I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs, how, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. 
Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature.